0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We're thrilled to have you here at the Scholar for the seventh annual Harrisburg Book Festival. My name is Alex Brubaker, and I'm the manager here at the Scholar and director of the festival. Before we get started, some boring details quickly to get out of the way. Please take this moment during my welcoming to silence your cell phones during the program. And a quick guideline about the signing line uh, that we're going to have afterwards. The entire festival, the whole festival, is free and open to the public. Anyone can walk in. Uh, but to gain entrance to the signing line, we just ask that the author's new books be purchased through the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. We have many, many copies of all their books. Um, understanding. Now, we are here this weekend, of course, to celebrate literature. We're here to celebrate the written word, the ideas and the transformative power of narratives, of knowledge, and the almost magical ability of books to make us more empathetic, kinder, and to expand our worldviews. But we're not just here to celebrate books in and of themselves, we're here to celebrate a physical space and a literary community of readers, writers, and authors. We want to bring these two ideas together, the power of literature and the power of a strong community. That's what the festival is about. Of course, a festival like this doesn't just happen. We have an amazing staff of booksellers, Arion a- Olivia, Adrian, Lauren, Shannon, Nathan, Liz, David, Derek, Logan, and Mitzi. They're going to be very sick of me by the end of this weekend, if not already. So please be extra nice to them. They work very hard. Let's give them a round of applause. We have an amazing list of sponsors. Without their support of the festival and the literary arts, this weekend would not have been possible. As I mention their name, please join me in giving them a warm round of applause. First up, Messiah College School of Humanities, Susquehanna College Department of English and Creative Writing, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, and our leading sponsor, the American Association of University Women, Harrisburg Branch. Now tonight, we are, uh, we are in for a very special evening with our keynote speaker, Aisha Sesay. The night will unfold as follows, I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Margie Ensign of Dickinson College up here in a second, then Aisha Sesay will deliver the keynote address, we'll have an interview on stage, and we'll follow that up with a book signing. But first, I'd like to introduce you to someone who is very familiar with Aisha's book and the story we're going to hear tonight, and that is Margie Ensign. Dr. Ensign is the president of Dickinson College. Prior to Dickinson, she served for seven years as president of the American University of Nigeria. While there, Ensign co-founded and led the Andamawa Peace Initiative, a YOLA-based response to the escalating violence, which successfully promoted peace in the area through education and community development while feeding 300,000 refugees fleeing the fighting to the north. Ensign has been internationally recognized for her pioneering work at the university, including receiving the 2011 African Leadership Award in Educational Excellence. In 2014, Ensign received the African Leadership Award from the World Center for Corporate Social Responsibility. During her tenure as president of the American University of Nigeria, Ensign was instrumental in bringing some of the kidnapped girls to the university where they could live and complete their secondary schooling on full scholarship. So, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Dr. Margie Ensign.
1: You're a little taller than I am, Alex. <laughs> so good evening, everyone. Thank you, Alex, for organizing this incredible event, And it's a true honor to interview to um, introduce Ayesha to you this morning. Aisha Sesay is an award-winning journalist who led the CNN team that won a 2014 Peabody Award for coverage of the missing Chibok students. She hosted CNN News Center, head of the network's Africa reporting for 10 years, and received a Gracie Award for Outstanding Anchor for her coverage of the Chibok girl's story. In 2014, she launched WE We Can Lead, Women Everywhere Can Lead, an educational humanitarian nonprofit organization was created to support African girls in receiving educational support to become future leaders. Of Sierra Leonean descent, she grew up in Britain and holds a BA with honors in English from Trinity College, Cambridge University. She now lives in my hometown of Los Angeles. Her new book, which we are here to discuss, Beneath the Tamarind Tree, A Story of Courage, Family, and the Lost Schoolgirls of Boko Haram, is the first definitive account of the 276 girls who were abducted from their school dorm rooms by Boko Haram in April 2014. With a soaring message of hope at its core, beneath the tamarind tree reminds us of the ever-present truth that progress for all of us hinges on unleashing the potential of girls and women. It has received countless blurbs and praise from prominent media outlets, including The New York Times, NPR, CNN, The Boston Globe, as well as many celebrities writes that Aisha Sesay has given us a gift in this account of the stolen Chibok girls of Nigeria. More than reportage, it is equal parts memoir, thriller, and inspirational call to arms for the defense of the rights of women and girls and the civilization that honors them. Hillary Clinton says of the book, Aisha Sesay's indispensable and gripping account of the brutal abduction of Nigerian schoolgirls by Boko Haram terrorists. Provides a stark reminder of the great unfinished business of the 21st century, equality for girls and women around the world. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Ayesha say.
2: Good evening, everyone. It is lovely to be here with you. Let me start by saying thank you to Alex, who uh, made this invitation and pick up my pen while I'm at it. Um, So Alex asked me to to come here, and as much as I was excited and I get excited about being anywhere and getting on a plane, I'm particularly happy to be here with you this evening and to see so many of you come out to hear the story, um, to talk about issues that I care about, girls' education and really to talk about this love letter to the stolen girls. Um, So I want to say thank you, Alex, for giving me that opportunity. Thank you to you all once more. Um, And thank you to the sponsors for putting on an amazing festival. Um, It is such an honor to be delivering the keynote um, at this festival. Um, You know, this book is a labor of love and uh, it has meant so much to me that it has been so well received. But I want to start by asking you a much simpler question before we get into what happened and and some of my thinking in writing this book. How much thought have any of you given to the lottery of life? You know, think about that for a minute or two. You and I were born into our bodies, to our respective parents. In my case, my rival was in a hospital in North London I hazard a guess that for many people in this room, life began somewhere in the United States. But how often do we stop to think about the hand we were dealt? I was born to parents who were both educated and progressive, which means from birth, my world was one of infinite possibilities, freedoms, and choices. But no one has a say in how their life starts. That's the lottery. It's a random hand we are all dealt. But what I know to be true is that the lottery of life only governs the beginning. Our journeys are far from set. There are infinite interventions that can alter one's life course. And there's perhaps no greater example of a life-altering intervention than education. Here are a few facts worth bearing in mind, courtesy of the World Bank. More than 700 million people, or about 10% of the world, are living in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is defined as living on less than $1.90 a day. More than half of the extreme poor live in sub-Saharan Africa, which is where I'm from. And that translates to roughly 413 million people. 50% of the world's poor are women. And poverty impacts children disproportionately. One out of five children is living in extreme poverty. The reality of growing up as a poor African girl in sub-Saharan Africa means you are less likely to finish school. The chances are high you'll be a child bride, which means you'll be married off before you're 18. You face becoming pregnant while still a child and facing the unacceptably high risk of either you or your child dying in childbirth. But the risks of growing up as a poor girl in sub-Saharan Africa are not data points to me. It is a reality that I understand on its most foundational level because my mother's beginning was that of a poor African girl in sub-Saharan Africa. What altered the trajectory of her life and saved her from becoming a child bride is education. My mother was born in a small, unremarkable town called Rutifunk in southeastern Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone, sadly, has been one of the poorest countries on earth for as long as I've been alive. It's mostly known for blood diamonds and a horrible civil war where people's limbs were hacked off. My mother's father, my grandfather, was a man called Pa du Conte. He wasn't formally educated. He couldn't read or write. He was a farmer, but that was more pastime than a profession. He spent much of his time in prayer and was known as a holy man. He had multiple wives. His second wife, Mamie I, gave birth to my mother. Mamie Ai wasn't formally educated either. She sold tomatoes, peanut butter, and peppermints in a loud, bustling market. She was softly spoken, and she barely ever raised her voice. And she was married off while she was a teenager. This is the home my mother was born into. There was no power, no running water, and no examples of educated women or educated individuals to look up to. This was the hand that my mother, Kadiatu Abibatu Konte, was dealt. Yet her father, for some unexplained reason, believed in education. And my mother excelled from the moment she entered her first classroom. From that small, dusty town, my mother journeyed through high school, then on to university in the capital, Freetown, then across the Atlantic to England, where she secured a PhD before heading back to Sierra Leone, where she lectured at the university she had attended before leaving academia behind, joining the government, helping negotiate peace in the country, renegotiate, uh, rewrite a constitution, and becoming the first woman to be chosen to be the vice presidential candidate to share a presidential ticket in national elections. This is what education can do. I am here with you today in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, simply because of the transformative power of education. So when I heard that hundreds of girls had been kidnapped from a school in northeastern Nigeria back in April 2014, it really got to me. The fact that girls could be stolen from school, it's outrageous to think that they could be stolen from anywhere, but the fact that they were stolen from school, from a place like Chibok, which is not that different from Roti that my mother came from, really got to me. I had also long known that the odds are stacked against girls who want to be educated in northern Nigeria. Nigeria has one of the highest out-of-school populations in the world. Between 8.5 and 10 million children are not in school. And the majority of them are in the northern part of the country. So the girls who were in school, who were stolen that night, April 14, 2014, were bucking trends. They were in school, about to take their final exams of secondary school, when only 4% of girls complete secondary school in northern Nigeria. They were there. They were there in the classroom, ready to be on that journey of transforming their lives. They were on the same path my mother had taken, the same path that my mother had traveled. And from that moment when I heard they'd been taken, It was a story that I knew I must commit myself to. As you well know, the world paid attention for probably about two weeks. That was all it was. If you break it down, it was roughly about two weeks. Some of you here may have even posted tweets and used the hashtag, bring back our girls. And during those weeks, everyone said they were outraged and that they cared desperately about these girls. And then the story faded from view. Excuse me. News bosses shifted attention to other stories, and the world moved on. But here's the thing Had 276 girls been stolen from a town in middle America, and 112 of them were still missing to this day, do you think the world would have so readily moved on? Would they so easily? have accepted the end of protest and calls for the girls to be brought back. I know my answer. But while the world moved on, the town of Chibok remained frozen. A community left to wrestle with broken families and immeasurable grief. They had sent their girls to school to gain educations, to improve their lot in life, and they had disappeared. When I talked to grieving Chibok parents, activists, and community members, they spoke with the same heartache as others in other parts of the world who have sadly faced the tragedy of stolen children. As the years went by, I was haunted by a couple of things. For all my reporting on this story while at CNN, the feeling that I had before I started writing this book was that I had failed. That I had failed to bring a true sense of who these stolen girls were and what were their hopes and dreams. I'd failed to make the world see that. And two, the other thing that haunted me as I set about writing this book is that the families of the missing girls were still mourning, and some of those parents had died from grief-related illnesses. My book, Beneath the Tamarind Tree, was born out of my desire to humanize the missing and those left behind. It's my attempt to bring home a fundamental truth that adolescent African girls are the same as girls filling classrooms right here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Parents in Chibok are just like you. They have the same fears and aspirations for their children's futures. They worry about their safety, their health, They dream of their kids growing up to be happy and productive. But as I researched this book and spoke to more of the schoolgirls who were swept up in this tragedy, my book began to morph into something else. It also became a portrait of the strength, tenacity, and resilience of African girls. What became clear was that from the moment Boko Haram swept into that school, hundreds of girls banded together. Bonds of friendship were strengthened. They moved as sisters as those terrorists carried them off into the darkness, taking them further and further away from everything they knew and loved. In writing this book, I saw personal bravery in a new form. It came to me as a girl, one whose very breath hangs in the balance while faced with men with guns, and yet in small and big ways, these girls were defiant and found ways to exercise their own agency. In Priscilla, Mary, and Sa, the three stolen girls who sit at the heart of my book, you gain insight into what the human spirit can endure in the face of relentless efforts to break it. And how it is possible for all of us to emerge from a terrifying ordeal with a heart full of forgiveness, a soul full of love, and still have the desire to carry on on the path we were stolen from. This book is a testament to the unquenchable thirst for education that girls in sub Saharan Africa have. The majority of the abducted girls who escaped or were freed as a result of negotiations are back in school. Some of you know where they are, some are here in the United States, the vast majority are in a specially created school in northeastern Nigeria. Those young girls are studying hard taking part in spelling bees, quizzes, dreaming new dreams about brighter futures in which they can make their families proud. You can only imagine the despair of the families of the missing 112. It's been more than five years. Some girls are back and are moving forward with their lives, but nothing has changed for the families their continued absence, the Nigerian government's failure to detail their efforts to find them, and the international community's silence in the face of that should trouble all of us. You can't seriously expect parents in northeastern Nigeria to send their girls to school when 112 are still missing. So you may be muttering, well, what's it to me whether or not girls are educated? Well, not only do those girls live long, healthier, more productive lives, but what you'll notice if you look closely is something else, that the places in the world with the greatest instability are those where the rights of women and girls are denied. Instability in one part of the world today can have reverberations right here in the United States tomorrow. We should all care about the missing girls. We should care about girls having the chance to sit in a classroom to learn how to read, write, dream of whatever it is that they can imagine. We should care about them having the chance to turn those dreams into reality. As you read the book, and thank you to all who have read it and thank you to all who have bought it, I just want you to spare a thought for the 112 who are still missing. And I want you to maybe carry that through as you read this book and you see African girls with a new eye to apply that same empathy to those who are different from us as we move through the world. Because we are actually not that different. Regardless of the fact that I come from a region with the highest rates of, of girls who aren't educated and unacceptably high rates of infant and, and maternal mortality. We're not that different. We have the same hopes and dreams. And I hope that what this book will do will be to deepen empathy, to deepen connectivity, and for us to maybe look up from the constant drone of the one story that is dominating today and that will look beyond the shores of the United States at what is happening in the rest of the world. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for your powerful and inspiring and important words. Um, Before we begin with a few questions, um, we have another special guest tonight. Um, As Aisha said, um, when I was out in northeast Nigeria, when the young women were kidnapped, it was actually one of my employees who said, what are you going to do for my sister? And I said, who is your sister? She said, she's one of the women who escaped that night. The world didn't know that anyone had escaped. So we went up and brought originally 10 to the American University of Nigeria and then 50 and the rest are there. When I chose to come home to America, I got a call from Nigeria saying, there are a number in America, and four in particular, who haven't really been getting the education they were promised. Could you help them? And so at Dickinson College, we've established a bridge program. It's for young people whose education has been disrupted by war, by violence, by natural disaster. Four of these incredible young women are with us. One is with us tonight. Patience Bullis um, will be speaking in a minute. She's going to help me interview Aisha. But this is not only her story in Aisha's book. She is blessing. So when you read that, think about Patience. And she is also writing her own book that we hope that we will see before too long. So may I ask Patience Bullis to join me on the stage?
2: so far away from you i know
1: (laughs) (laughs) so patience has um crafted some wonderful questions we will start with you patience
2: hi patience
1: (laughs) hi everyone
3: thank you president ensign and thank you so much aisha for inviting me here i read your book i'm so inspiring with it and I thought before, like, the world already forgot about the Chiboy girls, but when I read about your book, I was like, here we go. <laughs> People didn't forget about them, so thank you for that. you I'm welcome. so grateful to read your book. So, I'm going to ask you a first question. Okay. There are many girls still in northern Nigeria that, are, sorry, there are many girls in northern Nigeria that are healed in the captivities. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry.
2: It's okay, darling. Take your time.
3: There are many girls in northern Nigeria that are held in captivities by religion and traditional and by their fathers and mm-hmm. husband. Their stories are never he- heard. Mm-hmm. No no one writes or campaigns of their behalf. Mm-hmm. What can you What can be done to tell their
2: stories and also free them? Mm. That's a great question. Thank you, Patience. You're absolutely right. I mean, particularly in northeastern Nigeria, where we're saying that you have 8.5 to 10 million children out of school, the majority of those children are girls. Um, It's As you know, it's predominantly Muslim in northern Nigeria, and that plus cultural norms hold girls back. And the norm is that you will see in some places in northern Nigeria, as you know, um, that more than 50% of girls are more likely to be married before they are even 16. So the 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 rights and and the, what you you talk about, those challenges are real. Um, we want to be able to give. Girls the opportunity to tell their stories in different in different ways and one of the things that you know I've been talking about more and more um, as someone who runs a not for profit with with girls with adolescent girls in Sierra Leone is looking at different mediums different formats for girls to tell their story so it can be heard and I'm thinking that one of the most important things is something like radio something like community radio yeah. which is something that I'm looking at setting up in Sierra Leone so that my girls can tell their stories and speak of their truths and their realities and that can go out to other girls and they can hear it and so they can also know that they're not alone so radio is an an incredibly important tool and obviously it takes people to come in set the radio stations up these community radio stations up but i think that's one way of girls getting their stories out and sharing it with the community and by extension the world the other thing is that in terms of freeing them from these um restrictions It is the the organizations that are working in northern Nigeria, the activists, the women who are campaigning for girls, just need more support. They just need more support to do this work. Um, I don't think it's important. You can move the needle, right? I mean, when you look at the voice that Malala has, right, and what Malala has achieved in the world by standing up and using her voice, you just need to support those who are doing this work and to show what education can do and look at patients right look at patients Thank you. I, I i think one of the things that we have to do when we when we talk to community leaders, fathers, religious men who generally are the gatekeepers to their girls' development, is to help them understand that educating your girls is not a zero-sum game. Because your girl is educated doesn't mean you lose authority. It's good for everybody, and it's making them understand that. So maybe the way we engage these communities needs to change, but we need more people, we need. Patients, we need you out there telling the story because when you tell that story, that father in Northeastern Nigeria, it resonates with him in a different way because you're from Northeastern Nigeria, you're from the community. So we have to support the patiences of this world. We have to create radio stations and platforms where girls can tell their stories.
1: Thank you, Aisha You're welcome. I to change directions just a little bit. You were with CNN International, and anyone who's lived or worked overseas know that, knows there's a huge difference between CNN International and domestic. Um, and I also want to say to you that the, the Bring Back Our Girls movement lasted a lot longer than two weeks, and yes. it's mainly because of you and Michelle Obama and Samantha Power. You were relentless in your stories. I think you faced some challenges getting that story out. And so can you talk a little bit about the general question? Why is our international news in the U.S. so poor compared to what you were able to do internationally? And what challenges and impediments did you face mm-hmm. as a journalist in trying to talk more about story, this story and stories like this?
2: Yeah, um, thank you for that question. I think that... You know, listen, I think the sad thing is um, we're at a time, uh, this is a climate where... Um, I think news bosses are making decisions, which I personally think are the wrong ones, obviously. But I think more to the point, I don't know that I would say international reporting is is poor. They're just not even activating those teams to tell those stories. News bosses have decided to take a a, a decidedly domestic focus and that started in 2016, more or less, or 2015, building up to okay. the current administration. When I was at CNN and the story first broke, which was 2014, mm-hmm. um, I think everyone at CNN got it. I don't think there, there, wasn't, there wasn't a challenge per se in, in getting them to understand this was a story they had to devote resources to. That became harder once the election campaign, once the 2016 campaign geared into full force. Then I was fighting against... A lack of interest, basically. And part of that is just simply that news bosses here in the United States, when it comes to Africa, yeah. tend to put Africa on the, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. They're, they're far down on the, we are far down on the, on the ladder. Right. And so the moment something else comes along, we're dropped. And this story was no different. Even though everyone was interested in 2014, when the first girls came out on October 13th, 2016, internally, they let me go. But as soon as the story was more or less done, they pulled all the teams. Um, In terms of trying to keep the story, story going in between 2014 and 2016, they were only really interested in doing it on anniversaries. The real dedication to the story isn't there, and I think some of that is, 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 of that is a cultural mindset mm-hmm. that here in the United States we can become so focused on what is happening within the shores, with the, on these shores, within these borders, that Africa just is so far away. There's an othering of Africa and Africans that I find really troubling here in the United States.
3: Only 1% of refugees have access to higher education. What can be done to support the higher education for refugees, particularly women?
2: Mm. I mean, there are a lot of girls, again, having access to education. I mean, we need to see that girls who, particularly in refugee camps, which we know that more than 2 million people have been displaced in northern Nigeria, northeastern Nigeria, with the problems from Boko Haram. And um, large numbers of them are women and girls who are living in camps who are now not going to school. I think you know part of it is supporting the agencies that are doing work. There are lots of good not-for-profits that are doing. They need funding. The UN, UNICEF, they need. We need to continue to hold these agencies in high regard and to give them the funding that they need. We need to put pressure on our governments to continue to meet their funding obligations. Um, these are some of the things we need to do to get education to these populations. Um, it's money. I mean, essentially, it's money and it's will. Right, And it's also about valuing the education of a girl and understanding that no matter where she is, she needs access to that education. Whether she's in a refugee camp, whether she's sitting in Chibok, or whether she's sitting right here in the United States, it's about valuing our girls.
1: If I could just make a comment on your your statement that we should be supporting the international organizations, what we found, and Professor Jacob is here with me, that um, we did have to keep 300,000 people going for two years because there was no international help. When the international help came, they did not know how to get to the most vulnerable people. So I would just say it's really important to support local organizations who are on the ground not who for know po- how to reach people um, who are most in need.
2: I, I, would, I would absolutely agree with that. I would only, uh, the only thing I would say to that is of course, we want to support local not-for-profits who know the organi- who know the environment and know the people. Right. The key is when these international organizations come in, it is to partner with them so that they get exactly. the expertise and can exactly. have the impact that they need. Right. Um, because what the international organizations do have is scale, mm-hmm. and they do have the money. Right. And so you do need to form these partnerships for you to have the impact you want on a sustainable, long-term um, way. Afghanistan is a great example right. of a country where international community came in and didn't often speak to women about what they wanted and didn't partner with local organizations to know what they needed, that's where they fall down. I agree with you.
3: Absolutely. Go ahead. Thank you. Go ahead. Oh, another one? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I'm just... Okay. What are your thoughts about the remaining Chibot girls that are still in the captivity, and will will they ever be released? That's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then, do you think the world is doing enough to help freedom,
2: Mm.
3: and what else can be done?
2: Yeah. Thank you for that. That's the question that I spend a lot of my time thinking about right now, the 112 who are still missing, because I think it's outrageous that more people aren't, and I think a lot of people are outraged and troubled, but we need that on a a much louder level, because I feel that, and Maggie Maggie knows this as well as I do, that if it hadn't been for the outcry, the groundswell from people all over the world, and let me also say led by Nigerian women, we bring back our girls. If If that had not happened, the Nigerian government would have done nothing to even get the 107 back that we know of. They would not have done anything. Margie can testify this because she was on the ground. They just wouldn't. It takes takes a call for accountability. It takes our collective voice to move the needle. That's what moved the needle before. I believe it can move the needle again. I think of the 112 girls who are missing. I do not believe it is. First of all, I, I don't believe that they can't be found. I just don't believe it. It's 112 girls, right? I mean, it's, the, the issue here is will. The issue here is will. The issue here is dedicating the resources. The issue comes back once more to valuing girls and the lives of women and girls. And for me personally, um, I'm working on a documentary that picks up where the book left off, which is with a focus on the 112 girls now. Because we have to keep this going.
1: Thank
3: you. You're welcome. Ask your last Go ahead. oh. you. Okay. <laughs> what got you so captivated about the Chibor story?
2: The Chibo girl story? Mm. What captivated me about it? Mm-hmm. I think partly what I talked about, the fact that... Um, Chibok and what you, where you come from, and where my mother comes from are such similar places. Mm. The fact that I was so moved by the fact that you were all still in school and defying stereotypes and and overcoming obstacles and were pursuing an education, and I felt that that had to be supported. That you're, and I think also. As a black woman, I think that I am so accustomed in big and small ways to my voice not not being heard or or feeling invisible at points. That here I was now with a platform and I felt it was important to use that platform to make sure that you were not ignored and made invisible, even though people wanted to make you invisible. I felt that if I had been blessed enough to achieve what I have achieved to be on this platform, that I had to use it for good. And I never saw you as different to me. You know, my mother, my mother actually always used to call you my sisters. And she always used to be, when, when she first heard that the 21 she was just like, your sisters are out. And because we felt a kinship, we felt, we felt a, a familiarity and a bond because of my mother's beginning and because so many people in my family aren't educated so many people in my family have been married off young and you know I saw my life and what my life could be through you and that's why I remain committed to this story. Thank you so
1: much You're welcome. So Aisha thank you so much for capturing the story of these amazing young women and let me just end with some words that one of them told me out at AUN when I asked her what this education meant to her. They're sort of burned into my soul. She said, education gives me the wings to fly, the power to fight, and the voice to speak. Mm -hmm. So thank you for giving them all a voice. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: We are going to transition into the audience Q&A portion of the evening. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and I will come around with the mic.
4: Thank you very much. I have a question and a comment. I'll try to be brief. The question is, my, my wife and I do a lot of work and I might just qualify. Everything we do is for free, it's without religion, it's without politics, Mm -hmm. but we work to educate children who have no other opportunities in Sierra Leone, Mm -hmm. in Ghana, uh, we've got some activity in Nigeria, Cameroon, uh, and in other countries, Pakistan, India, China. When you talk about your mother not having electricity or not having power, you could maybe you can amplify on that, because we're also talking about Ebola, we're talking about floods, we're talking about typhoid, malaria, sickle cell, mm-hmm. and other things. I woke up this morning to two family members, one of whom I tutor, a five-year-old girl, and her mother having sickle cell and typhoid mm-hmm. simultaneously. So that life on a daily basis is very, very hard, and mm-hmm. I'd hope you'd comment on that. Let me make my quick aside, mm-hmm. Alex. One of the things we do in Ghana is I mentor community projects, and I do that in Sierra Leone too. But Ghana has a, an Internet hub that reaches out into other communities, mm. and I'm addressing your desire for the radio mm. stations. And the interesting thing for Harrisburg people is I came upon this as a UN-registered activity. Mm-hmm. Do You know where this UN-registered activity is based? Mm-mm. At Harrisburg University. Mm. Professor Amjad Gahan has hubs now about 10 around the world. And I help with that activity through the projects that we have in different countries. I'm done with the aside, if you could just talk difficulties beyond the not having electric power and not Mm. having water. Thank you very much.
2: And thank you for the question. And first of all, thank you for the work you do. Um, Uh, Thank you. Thank you. you, We both know how difficult this work is, so I want to thank you. And it happens under the radar, and it's, you know... It's not sexy work, you know, that people want to write big, splashy headlines about, so thank you. Um, Now, uh, the one thing I do want to clarify is that you are asking specifically in my mother's case what her challenges were when you say her day-to-day life, because my mother, when she was growing up, thankfully, wasn't um, caught up in the uh, Ebola outbreaks that we've seen in recent years in Sierra Leone in 2014 or currently happening in DRC. I mean, for her, I think you know, when my mother was growing up, aside from not having power, but aside from having to go and collect water from a river, aside from having to do all the housework that you hear typically African girls have to do, sweep, cook, clean, wash clothes before they can even go to school, go to school, come back, do all of that again. That was her reality, help her mother. At one point, because my father's first wife was what I like to call a dragon, and that's in polite company. was basically causing problems for her to get her school fees paid. My mother sold ginger beer. My mother sold ginger beer so she had enough money to kind of help us to help herself through school. My mother was always industrious, she was always enterprising, but to get through school she needed scholarships because her family couldn't afford it. So every day was a struggle. Every day took her own personal will and desire to keep moving because there's no real pressure to keep moving there weren't examples to to say that's where I want to go those were her own dreams her own aspirations that powered her forward but the struggles are the struggles that you and I know all too well so yes you are as a child in Africa if you're born into a poor home you are at risk of dying from malaria or could it be TB and all of that or diarrhea as a child because of dirty water all of those things are the reality in her home because once your mother isn't educated, your risks of dying from those things increase. So for her, it was that day-to-day grind that we know so well. But she wasn't fighting, she, she wasn't caught up in, and, and in Sierra Leone typhoid has become a very prevalent issue. And that's something recent. So for her, it was just the day-to-day life struggles of making sure that she could get her homework done while doing all the work. Or, you know, while keeping her parents happy, while helping her mother in the market, while dealing with a a stepmother who was trying to close down her opportunities. It was a struggle.
0: Question in the back.
5: Thank you so much for being here and for the work that you did to cover this story and the work and labor that went into this book. Um, You've made it so clear to us and, and so powerful the impact uh, that this story, its relationship to your background, your family's background, your mother's upbringing. And it strikes me that you said earlier, to be a black woman in all many parts of this world is to live with your voice so often being silenced or overlooked. Mm-hmm. And yet, with your platform, with this book, with your position in journalism, I would imagine that that struggle is ongoing, mm-hmm. even with the platform you have and in the process of keeping our eyes locked on this story. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about the unique labor and challenges of being a journalist, of being a black woman journalist covering this particular story with the connections that you have to it in the international news scene? And I don't mean to make you do more work in sharing that labor with us, but if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about the costs of of what it means to do that and the unique position that you have as you do it. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you. Um, It is always, I found great, um, I found it hugely frustrating that um, the story has been um, swept aside so easily and that it literally has taken me calling in personal favours to get people to pay attention to it or to give me a platform to talk about this book you know, it, it's remarkable to me, and I think it's an indictment of the world that we live in, that people would much rather... It would seem, because I I, mean, I say this from someone who reached out to a lot of different media organizations and individuals, and they decided that, eh, it's just a bit of a downer.
3: <laughs>
2: you know, it's just... I spoke to someone on a prominent national show and I was saying, can you get me on? I mean, I was literally lobbying people. I want you to understand that in terms of getting this book out and getting the press, it involved me sitting and writing personal emails, writing to Anderson, writing to Jake, writing to Aaron, writing to all of those people saying, can you get me on your show? Because when the publishers reached out, they were just like, we'll get back to you. So I had to personally write emails and say, please, 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 I need your support to get this story out. And in the case of one very famous person who I spoke to with a platform, who I'd been lobbying to get on their show, emailed, called, you know, we need the platform's support. And the person said to me, you know, well, you know, the producer's They just don't get it. So the producers just, you know, what's the hook? That was the thing I kept getting. What's the hook for getting the story out now? As if we need a hook for 112 girls who were stolen. Is their humanity not a hook enough? And you know, it just kept coming back to me that you know, when I look at the fact that they just did a documentary about little Madeline McCann who was taken or the, or the little girl who was stolen while her parents were on holiday with her. Or that they just did a documentary on John Bonet Ramsey, who was stolen 22 years ago. There's a readiness to tell those stories. But what I have felt as I've tried to get the story out is that there is a knee-jerk reaction to rendering the stories of black and brown people, black and brown girls, rendering them invisible. And the attention lasts for only so long. So it is an uphill struggle but I continue to push and I continue to use my platform because I have been blessed enough to be able to send a note to Anderson Cooper and say, can you put me on your show? And so I'm using every card and I'm calling in every favor. And when I see those people who don't put me on their shows, I am shaming them.
0: Question in the back.
3: Yeah, hi. I just wanted to
2: see if you could give us, everyone here will be very motivated to do something for two minutes after we leave, right? Mm -hmm. So is there anything you can tell us directly, an organization, a a place that you can adopt a family,
3: adopt a girl? Mm. Concretely, Mm. are there things we can do to make a
1: difference?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for that question. First of all, you can support the school where the Freed Girls are attending in northern Nigeria, you can make donations directly to the school, the new foundation school as part of the American University in um, we I'm sure I can get that information to Alex and he can put it on the website so that you can all do that. The other thing is, and it's much simpler, is you all have Twitter. You can all directly tweet at the Nigerian government. Every single one of them, and I'm starting a social impact campaign, so you will hear more about this in the weeks ahead, which involves, we can all use our voices, and my plan is just to create a groundswell and have more and more people directly target them and directly ask the question, because I've said this, and I will always say this because I know it to be true, the Nigerian government hates criticism and a public spotlight on them more than anything, and they especially hate it if the light is coming from the United States, so, all of us have a power in this room to use our platforms to get our networks to tweet directly at M. Buhari. Because when he wakes up and he sees those messages tomorrow, he may well die. And so, we just need to keep the pressure on. And, you know, in, in all seriousness, you know, just because I say this, I, I say it works, I say it's worth doing because we saw it work before. This isn't some aspirational thing. We saw how a public coming together and rallying, led by women in Nigeria, led the government to doing something. It's the only When Brazil's forests were burning and their president didn't want to do anything, it was because everybody started tweeting and talking about it and shaming him that he did do something. People care about reputations. So we just need to create a reputation, we have to create a cost for doing nothing. And what that cost will be, I shall tell you more about in a few weeks.
0: (laughs) Yes, we have time for just one more question in the second row. Hi there. Hi. Uh, My question is, I'm trying to understand what the resistance is. I know there's a lot of resistance to educating women. Is it that they will lose their labor within the family mm. and they need that? Is it that uh, they're worried that they will move away or out of the country or the fact that they might actually gain some power with some understanding? And, I'm, you know, as I think about how you could... Uh, Portray that or have it work so that it's a win-win, mm-hmm. you know, if the, if the women or girls are now better educated and earning more money to bring to the family mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. But what do you think the main resistance yeah. is?
2: I mean, I think, I, think, I think some of it is, I mean, essentially, I think it's always power, right? When people are resistant to other people's betterment and empowerment, it is always because they fear that their, um, their rise means they lose control, And so in a place like Northeastern Nigeria where the understanding of what it is to be a girl or woman is to be secondary to the male, to be docile, to be quieter, they fear that them being educated empowers them, gives them stronger voices, and basically become less controllable, less willing to be controlled. That it upsets the dynamic of life if you have these educated girls and who become educated women. And therefore, they don't, they, they, it's disruptive. And I think that that is the principal objection. I think some of it is is wrongly rooted in religion. Um, you know, Boko Haram, and why Boko Haram is, is objecting to girls being educated is because they don't believe that girls should be educated because, once again, they don't want them to be empowered and they believe girls should be married off and their only focus should be on bearing children and tending to their husbands. And then in some cases, it isn't that people don't want their girls to be educated, it's that they don't have the money to educate them and that if they have to choose between educating girls and boys, they choose boys because they think the return on the boy is greater, that ultimately the girl will go off and get married anyway and then so they've lost their investment. That's the very crude calculation some families are making and some of it is out of necessity. So there are myriad different reasons why Some people don't... White girls aren't being educated. And it's different for different groups. But I know that in Afghanistan... That... There was a small town where they were working to get girls educated. In fact, no, that's a different story. They're working to get women um, small-scale jobs so they would have a little money. And their men didn't want them to have that opportunity because they feared once more, more money, greater voice, greater voice, more power, more resistant to being controlled. And what they had to do with the men is understand that they would benefit that didn't work so they brought them into the operation so that the men made a little bit of money next to their wives and so they were all invested and that's what we have to help men understand that it's good for everybody and find ways of them seeing that and that's the key
0: can we give Aisha to say one more huge round of applause <laughs>
1: Thank you.
2: And I just want to say thank you to all of you again for being here because once more there are a million things you could be doing. You could be reading the president's Twitter feed. (laughs) But you're not. You're here and you're paying attention to something that is happening beyond these shores. So for that, I thank you. Spread the word. Thank you.
4: You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.